All right, if you'll stand as we turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, we're going to read the first 10 verses as Pastor Bruce digs into the Sermon on the Mount and the beginning of it you'll recognize as the Beatitudes. Again, we're going to read Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. God, we just uh, ask that as we read your word, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, you would reveal to us, um, Lord, what it means to be blessed. God, may we just see um, mercy and righteousness and a love for your word. God, as uh, the ultimate pursuit, Lord, may, uh, may you just, um, God, uh, focus our hearts on, uh, on what you have for us and uh, what you have um, is best. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing in a series that we began last Sunday with an introduction on the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we are transgressing, trans, that's the wrong word, transgressing, uh, transitioning, excuse me, transgressing, yeah, we're all sinning here, uh, transgr- transitioning to a focus on the Beatitudes. I think most fathers have one or two sayings, as a, fa- as a pastor, I have one or two sayings that are obviously wrong, like I just mentioned. Uh, and I think most fathers have one or two sayings that, they're, that they are known for by their family and friends. Uh, my father is no different. Many of you know who my father is. Uh, he was a pastor here at our church for 31 years or so. And uh, he had one such thing that I will never forget. I'm sure my two brothers will never forget this saying. In fact, I know some of you have heard this same saying often as well. In fact, he used to say this saying a lot of times when he would ask a favor of you in relation to doing something in serving in ministry, or if we were kids growing up, he would ask it, hey, serve, it, serve himself. And his saying was, the Lord will richly bless you. See, some of you already know it. Listen, I have heard that saying probably countless times, a gazillion times since I was five years old and will never, never forget it. Although I'm still trying to figure out how the Lord will richly bless me, for fetching my dad another can of Diet Coke while he's watching a football game. But nonetheless, even today, many people invoke God's blessing after someone sneezes, and we say what? Bless you. Uh, Even politicians often close out political speeches with benedictions such as, God bless you, or God bless the USA. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean for God to bless you. Does it mean good health? 
I hope that sneeze by divine inter- intervention doesn't turn into something worse. Doesn't, doesn't mean much wealth. Uh, I hope God will richly prosper you and He gives you everything you want in life. After all, the very first word of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is this word, blessed. Which would have guaranteed, by the way, the attention of all who were on the side of the mountain that afternoon to hear Jesus' teaching. So what would it take for you to consider yourself, quote, blessed? You'll notice in your notes, in fact, you want to, welcome to pull that insert out and follow along or follow along on the screen behind me. But what would it take for you to consider yourself blessed? And the answer is often found in our if-only list, such as if only I were blank, well, then I would be good. Life would be good. If only I had blank, then I'd be happy. If only I could blank, then I'd have it made. If our If onlys tend to tell us what we really think about what it means to be blessed, what you fill in that blank there. But here's the problem with all that. Most of our if onlys never lead to a blessed life that truly satisfies us. We in America, we claim to know all about the pursuit of a blessed life. What the Declaration of Independence refers to, the pursuit of life, liberty, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Benjamin Franklin made this insightful comment. Please note that the Declaration only gives people the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it yourself. And the trouble is that sometimes we think we've caught happiness by the collar, but over time it simply doesn't measure up. In New York City, it's been said that there are at least 8 million cats and counting. Uh, as you know, the city is basically made of concrete and steel, so when those who live there have a pet that dies, it presents somewhat of a problem because they just can't go out into the backyard and bury it. And so the city actually charges a fee of $50 to remove your dead animal, your pet. One enterprising woman thought this to herself, though. Well, maybe I can make some money by providing a service to people in the city and save them some money at the same time. So she placed an ad uh, on Craigslist or the newspaper and what have you. And the ad was this. When your pet dies, I'll take care of it for you for only $25, half of the cost the city was charging. And since this was... Uh, you know, half the cost. You can imagine the phone calls now poured into this woman. But here's how the business actually worked. The woman would go to the local Salvation Army thrift store and buy an old suitcase for 2 or $3. When someone called for her services, she went to the home and carefully placed the cat or in the suitcase. She would then take a ride on the subway in the early evening, a perfect time for pickpockets and thieves, and place the suitcase near the door of the subway car. Almost always a thief would come by when the doors opened, steal the suitcase, and run out. She would yell, stop, thief, to no avail, of course. But what a surprise for the thief when they opened up the suitcase. The truth is, though, millions of people are running after a suitcase thought to hold the key to a blessed life. 
But when open, the contents never quite deliver what is expected. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came on the scene and He turned the prevailing view of a blessed life upside down in what is commonly known, as we just read here, the Beatitudes, which is a Latin word for blessing or blessed. Now, before we look at Jesus, these Beatitudes, uh, I want us to first look at our culture's view of a blessed life. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. The culture's view of a blessed life is centered on one's abundance. Their abundance. It's been said the quest to attain a state of blessedness is a universal human longing. And the voices of our culture tell us that this state of blessedness in which we are seeking is centered on one's abundance. Whether that's an abundance of wealth, beauty, Success, power, prestige, pleasure, fame, and the like. Our culture preaches a message that basically says this. The more I have, the happier I will be. Now, that was the same message that King Solomon bought into some 3,000 years ago. Now, if anybody should have been happy with the world's standards of a blessed life, let me tell you, King Solomon should have been. Under Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel reached the apex of prosperity, power, and prestige. Solomon was a man who had this unparalleled wealth, success, and pleasure at his disposal. In fact, his wealth was so vast that the Bible says his silver was as common as rocks. He had buildings, servants, and thousands of the finest horses in the world. His pleasure was fabulous food and beautiful women by the hundreds. In reflecting on all that he had, reflecting on his life, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good or what is blessed. What is this blessed life? And what did Solomon find out when he tested that theory? When he tested the culture's message that the more I have, the more I'll be happy. Well, he tells us later on in the same chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so basically Solomon says this, after trying it all. I tried it all, and I found three dead ends in my search for happiness. They're the same three dead ends that we still come to today. In fact, notice in your notes here, Solomon learned the hard way that accumulating things, experiencing pleasures, and achieving success are dead ends to finding lasting happiness. Some 3,000 years later, the ongoing, the longing for happiness is just as intense and the goal is just as elusive. So why is happiness so elusive? Well, one clue is found in the etymology or the origin of the word. Happiness 
like haphazard, is based on the old Middle English word hap, which meant chance or luck. And so happiness, therefore, is circumstantial. In other words, it depends on what happens to us or even around us. We're happy if certain things happen to us. And if they don't happen to us, then our happiness, well, it poof, it vanishes like the wind. As one commentator said, human happiness is something that is dependent on the chances and changes of life. Something which may give and which life may also destroy. But there's another more prominent reason why happiness is so elusive to people. And that is, by and large, people are looking for it in the wrong places. People are trying to find satisfaction with external things, stuff, possessions, abundance, while ignoring the only one who can actually meet our true needs in life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We tried to be our own masters as if we had created ourselves. And then we hopelessly strive to invent some sort of happiness for ourselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come human history. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. King Solomon was a tragic example of this. From the culture's perspective, get this, Solomon's, quote, blessed life of incredible wealth, incredible power, and the means to satisfy all his carnal desires should have made him supremely happy. And yet he summed it all up with one word. Did you catch what he said? He calls it meaningless. He writes in Ecclesiastes 2.17, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In fact, Solomon's life illustrates the relevance of the question that Jesus puts forth to us in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, when he asks, hey, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus tells us even in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. This is why if you're looking for happiness in stuff and what the world offers to us, you're looking in the wrong place. In fact, as the great Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit, then a piece of paper will stop a bullet. And so the deepest longings of the human soul can be met only by God Himself. That's why when Jesus came into the world, He did not offer to us the world's stuff. What Jesus is saying here in these Beatitudes is simply this. You will never find true happiness in this world. Never. It's like one of us trying to kick a game-winning 45-yard field goal tonight in the Chiefs game. It's never going to happen. It's not realistic. It's not reality. So if our culture's view of a blessed life is centered on one's abundance, that's what our culture says, 
which ultimately never satisfies your soul and it leaves you feeling empty inside, then what is Jesus' view of a blessed life for kingdom citizens? Well, notice this. Jesus' view of a blessed life, number two, is centered not on one's abundance, but rather on God's approval. It's centered on God's approval. Now, nine times in these nine verses of the Beatitudes, Jesus will use this word blessed. But what does that mean? The concept of blessing goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, you get an idea of what it means to be blessed in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 and 27, where the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That the Lord make his face shine on you and turn his face towards someone. It speaks to the accepting, approving smile of God. And the Beatitudes here bear that out as well. When Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks of blessing, in other words, in terms of having what? Not abundance of stuff that this world offers us, but in terms of having the kingdom of heaven, which we learned last Sunday is simply another way of saying the kingdom of God. So to have the kingdom of heaven, in other words, is also to know the king. And it's to have the king's approval or favor on your life. This is the primary meaning of blessed. It is to be graciously approved or graciously favored by God. Now, although the Greek word here that we find here for blessed is sometimes translated as happy, That's not the best translation of the word. It's true that the blessed are happy. But blessedness cannot be reduced simply to happiness. Since happiness is primarily a feeling that comes and goes. And so Jesus is not promising the poor in spirit will, quote, feel happy. He's promising something much greater than that. He's promising them the approval or the favor of God on their lives. Kent Hughes summarizes it this way. And I quote what he writes. He says, Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. Blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So when God blesses us, he approves us. And yes, such approval will certainly result in a sense of joy and even happiness. But a blessed life is primarily a life that is approved 
or favored by God. Or as Max Lucado puts it, it is a life that receives the applause of heaven. The poor in spirit are blessed because they have something. And what do they have? As kingdom citizens, they have the approval of the king. That is Jesus Christ. And this leads to joy that far surpasses the momentary happiness of all the money, fame, and beauty and power of this world. The approval of the king is far more satisfying than the, even the approval of family and friends, bosses and co-workers, teachers and coaches. Now, don't get me wrong here. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He wants us to be blessed as His kingdom citizens. He wants us to experience joy and satisfaction. And He knows that this will not come by having an abundance in the world, but rather from having abundance, I mean approval, from the King. In the Beatitudes here, Jesus is simply declaring that the culture's view of a blessed life has been turned upside down. Because the kingdom of heaven has come on earth. The king in Jesus Christ is here. And that's why Jesus, going back to last Sunday, says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near. Notice this in your notes, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes declare and describe the blessedness of citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Now, look again what Jesus says. Let's read these Beatitudes again. Notice it in your Bibles here. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, perhaps you're thinking to yourself in your own mind, I mean, you've got to be kidding me. What Jesus says here, it sounds like one contradiction after another. And if you're thinking that, that, and it's easy to think that, by the way, and part of the reason is because we're so caught up with the culture's view of what a blessed life is, which is completely at odds, by the way, with what Jesus says here in the Beatitudes. You see, to most people, the Beatitudes, what Jesus writes here, seems absurd. In fact, it's even ridiculous, ludicrous. In fact, if our culture wrote the Beatitudes, here's what it might say. Blessed are the entitled, for they grab what they want. Blessed are the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they shall win. Blessed are the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Blessed are those who have the best resumes, for this world lies at their feet. That's our culture's view of a blessed life. 
But Jesus comes along and he turns that all upside down. In fact, another author put it this way. The Beatitudes are a summons, therefore, to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is, in fact, the right way to live as kingdom citizens here on this earth. Another pastor and author put it this way. Jesus uses counterintuitive gospel logic to show us that life in the kingdom of God is completely contrary to what we expect. So what are the Beatitudes then all about? Well, the answer is threefold. And given an overview of the Beatitudes, we're not going to dive into them each individual beatitude. Uh, We did that three years ago when we did a series on the beatitudes. You can go online at our church's website, wearelifebridge.com. You can listen to the podcast and and listen to that whole series. What we're going to do here this morning is simply do a flyover, uh, an overview of these beatitudes. And what they're all about is we find in a threefold answer. Number one, the beatitudes are about a humble yet confident blessedness. What the first four Beatitudes have in common is that they all point out our spiritual weakness. Jesus teaches that you know that God's blessing is upon you if you are, first of all, poor in spirit. Or what D.A. Carson is, you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Put differently, you are poor in spirit if you know that there's nothing within you, not family ties, not occupation, or so-called good works, that is valuable enough to commend you to God. Put illustratively, you are blessed when you see you're just a beggar coming to the door of the kingdom without anything to give to get into it. And so you're now pounding on the door and you're appealing to the king, Oh Lord, let me in. Oh Lord, give me what is needed for entrance. Your grace and mercy. Tied to poor spirit, Jesus next announces the emotional counterpart to that first beatitude when he says, Blessed are those who, what? Mourn. Here, Jesus does not mean merely mourning over the losses of this life, such as a job or a house or even a spouse. What Jesus means specifically here is mourning over your own sins, even the sins of others and the sins that pervade our world. And do we mourn over that? Jesus says those who mourn are blessed. Jesus also teaches blessed are the meek, a disposition that naturally follows the first two Beatitudes. For if you understand and if you feel your need for God, you will not be bold, you will not be brash, and you will not be self-assertive. You wouldn't be a macho man, but a meek man, which is not someone who says, walk all over me, but rather, let me walk a mile or two for you. Meekness describes someone who is gentle, someone who's humble, 
Someone who's unassuming and willing to serve others before they serve themselves. And so Jesus says, how blessed it is then to be poor in spirit, to be more, to mourn, and to be meek. And then fourth of all, he says, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we learned last Sunday, not a righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees, which is a false righteousness, a a pseudo-righteousness, a righteousness that's all external on what they do in their works. No, this is a righteousness that comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So how blessed are you? Well, you can tell how truly blessed you are based on your attitude toward yourself. That is, do you believe what Jesus teaches here in the Beatitudes, or have you believed the most prevailing lie in our culture? A lie that says, express yourself, believe in yourself, brand yourself, lean into yourself. In other words, be self-confident, be self-reliant, and be self-assured. But Jesus says, listen, no one gets into the kingdom of heaven unless one recognizes their need for God through faith in Jesus Christ. So first, the Beatitudes are about a humble yet confident blessedness. Number two, they are also about a selfless yet satisfied blessedness. When you look at the Beatitudes you'll notice that none of them are focused on self. Rather interesting. There is no blessed are those who look out for number one. Rather, each of these Beatitudes focuses either on God or others or a combination of both. In fact, the first four Beatitudes focus on our relationship with God. In the words of another author, The Beatitudes basically say, blessed is the one who thinks little of himself or thinks enough of himself that he knows he shouldn't think much of himself. Blessed are those who know they are spiritually poor and thus are meek before God and others. Blessed are those who know their sins. They mourn over them and long for a time when they won't be weighed down by them. Another author calls these first four Beatitudes the The Beatitudes of need. Why would he say that? Because of our radical, desperate need for God and His righteousness. He calls the last four Beatitudes the Beatitudes of action. Actions that are pleasing to God because they are lovingly focused on others. For example, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. That is, those who forgive others their trespasses as theirs has already been forgiven by God. Jesus teaches, blessed are the pure in heart. That is, those who aren't motivated by self-love or self-interest or people's approval, but those who serve God and serve others with an undivided heart. Jesus also teaches, blessed are the peacemakers. That is, those who bring reconciliation between this person and that person, but more importantly, those that bring reconciliation between this person and God Almighty through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted 
That is those who are reviled and rejected for proclaiming and living the gospel of the kingdom in the here and now. In fact, we'll look at this one more in detail next Sunday. And then number three, the Beatitudes are about a future yet present blessedness. A future yet present blessedness. It's interesting to note that most of the Beatitudes here are in the future tense. Such as, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth, or they shall be filled, or they shall obtain mercy. However, the promise for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is given in the present tense. In fact, it is stated twice at the beginning in verse 3 and at the end here in verse 10. And so while the kingdom of heaven is not yet fully realized, it is here already. Which means that this blessed life that Jesus is talking about is a present reality, not just something in the future. It's plain from the rest of Jesus' teaching, especially here in the book of Matthew, that the kingdom of heaven is a present reality which we can receive now, which we can inherit now, which we can enter into now through our belief, our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ, the King. Yes, This kingdom is still to be consummated. It is still to be revealed in its final glory. Nevertheless, all the blessings that are expected in the kingdom in the future are already being experienced by kingdom citizens now. So get this. Listen, we can obtain mercy now. We know, we have experienced the mercy of God even now. We can obtain comfort now. We can become God's children now. And we can be filled now. Jesus promised all these blessings to His followers in the here and now. And this is referred to as the already, not yet theme of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is present now on earth. Why? Because Jesus has come. And yet, in the kingdom, blessings are a present reality, but not to the extent they will be when Jesus comes again and ushers in the new millennium, the new kingdom to come. Only then will God's people, will kingdom citizens, experience the full realization of the kingdom blessings. And yet, we can enjoy foretaste of those blessings here and now. But this also means, by implication, that we are to live with a kingdom mindset now as well. In fact, that's what the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We must demonstrate by our very lives that the kingdom of God is already a vital reality within reach of all who trust and submit to Jesus the King. This also means changing how we think, how we look at the world around us, and how we live in the here and now. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus talks about. That's what he gets at. That's his point. Hey, you're kingdom citizens. And as a kingdom citizen, live like this. 
This is what it means. Now, with all of this in mind, I want to draw your attention to who's actually listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to think with me two concentric circles that day when Jesus began to teach. You have the inner circle of disciples, and you have an outer circle of the multitudes, or some of your Bibles refer to as the crowds. And so these disciples, we're told in verses 1 and 2, in the setting of the Sermon on the Mount here, that these disciples of Jesus Christ, they, quote, came to Jesus. Why? Because they were followers of Jesus. In other words, you go back to chapter 4, they believed Jesus when he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in verse 17 of chapter 4. And later on, in verse 19 and 20, they followed Jesus when he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that's exactly what some of these disciples did. But what about the multitudes? What about the crowds that were also gathered around? Well, these multitudes, they also were listening to Jesus, but they're on the outer circle. And the reason they were listening is because they were simply fans of Jesus, we might say. We know this because, again, you go back preceding the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 4, verse 23. Listen to what it says. Now, Jesus went about all Galilee. And here's what he's doing throughout the region of Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then it says, then his fame went throughout all Syria. In other words, Jesus is rather popular right now. He's a new kid in town. Except he's not a kid, he's a king. As you might imagine, news of Jesus' miracles spread like wildflower. Wildfire, I mean. See, I have all kinds of things. And big crowds were following the buzz surrounding Jesus here. And it was precisely at this moment that Jesus made his way up a mountainside and began teaching both the disciples who were committed to him, and those who were just interested in what he could do for them. The crowds. And his teaching, as we alluded to last Sunday, always calls for a response. Even the Beatitudes here, in the beginning section of the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes are calling out to us to respond. And here's what I believe they're saying to us. Notice this in your notes. The words of the Beatitudes. The words of Jesus here. The Beatitudes are words of celebration for those who are already in the kingdom of heaven. And yet they are also words of invitation for those who are not yet in the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are words of celebration for kingdom citizens. Because Jesus is telling us, and if you're here this morning, and you've already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
And he is saying to you through these Beatitudes, listen, you're blessed beyond measure. You are blessed beyond imagination. And he says, here's why. Because as kingdom citizens, as disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, listen, you have, through your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the approval of God on you. You have the favor of God. You have God's blessing. And that blessing is a future yet present reality. And so no matter what your circumstances may be in this world, Jesus says, listen, celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. You are blessed. And yes, that blessing is much different than what our culture describes as blessing. He says, you know King Jesus. You've trusted His saving grace. You've been given forgiveness of sins. You've been given the gift of eternal life. You have His kingdom power already at work in you. And you will inherit the kingdom of God with all of its infinite blessings. And so celebrate. But this is not true for the multitudes, the crowds who are not yet in the kingdom of God. And so the Beatitudes, therefore, listen, are words of invitation for you. You see, right now, you do not have the approval of God. You do not have the favor of God upon your life. Why? Because you are still dead in your sins. And God will not and cannot bless a life of sin. And so the blessings of the kingdom are not yours to claim. But the good news is the Beatitudes come to you as an invitation to respond to God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. The King has come. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's an invitation to respond to Jesus' message of repentance and salvation. And then you can be assured of God's blessing in your life as well. So as we come to a close, we must ask ourselves, where am I? As Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, where, imagine with me, Jesus is on the mountainside and you're there with him. Where are you standing in relation to Jesus Christ? Are you a fan of Jesus standing with the multitudes, but also standing on the outside of the kingdom of heaven? My prayer for you is that you will hear, and you will hear with an open mind and an open heart what Jesus has to say in this sermon, and that you will respond to His invitation of a blessed life through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So where are you? Are you a fan? Standing with the multitude, yet standing on the outside of the kingdom. Or are you a follower of Jesus Christ, listening to His every word as a citizen of God's kingdom? And if that's you this morning, my prayer for you is that you will be convicted, you will be challenged to live out this 
significant sermon, knowing at the same time that you are already accepted by God through your faith in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing for you to do to earn God's approval, to earn God's favor, because Jesus has already done it all. We have His righteousness now. And you are truly blessed as a kingdom citizen. So again, I ask, where are you? As Jesus stands and begins to teach this powerful sermon on the side of the mountain. Where are you standing in relation to Jesus Christ here this morning? It is a matter of life and death for eternity. And so the words of Jesus here are both celebration and yet invitation. And as we bow our heads, and as we close our eyes even now, I pray that you would respond in the manner that is appropriate for your life. God is standing. He is waiting for you with open arms. And so as our instrumentalists come and prepare for our response time, and as they play a song, won't you respond? Won't you cry out to Jesus in prayer right where you're seated? Perhaps you're a fan, but you hear the tugging, you feel the tugging of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I need Jesus Christ, and I have nothing to offer. I want to be part of the kingdom. Then cry out, repentance of sin and faith. And as a follower, Man, I encourage you to pray and ask Jesus to give you an open heart, an open mind. And each Sunday as we dive into this message, that you will respond. You will be challenged and convicted. As the instrumentalists pray, this is your opportunity.